Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Phil Acrosophy Podcast. I am very excited to have Alex Sarama back on the show. Um, Alex is the director and head coach of Italy's College Prep Academy. He's the player development director for Paris Basketball that competes in the Euro Cup, which is like the Champions League of European basketball. He's a creative director for Basketball Immersion and honestly creates the best content on the web. Really, I would say for any sport, but definitely basketball. Former NBA Europe and has done consulting for NBA teams and college teams and men's and women's basketball all throughout the U.S. Um, Alex, awesome to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. It's great to be back. And I think now it's different because we're doing the podcast uh, after meeting in person as opposed to the first one. But we'll have even more to talk about after uh, the summer when I was in Denver. Totally. I'm pretty fired up to have a series of podcasts with you. I think there's so many unbelievable topics. Um, but let's kick it off with what have you been up to lately? Well, give me, I love hearing your new ideas and uh, the new things you're working on. So um, just, you know, whether it's podcasts you listen to, people, your books you're reading, blogs you're reading, or drills you're doing? Absolutely. So I think I have different spurts in terms of like things I'm interested in at one time, and it probably changes every two, three weeks. But um, I've been working on a big player development project. I've actually been writing, I've been starting to write a book of all my player development activities, which I think would apply to any sport. Um, so it's a lot of different small-sided games, et cetera, task constraints. And as I've been going through that, it's really just been forcing me to think more about my own practice and what I'm doing. And I've been pairing that. I've been going probably, well, even deeper into some of the literature surrounding like nonlinear pedagogy, ecological dynamics. So um, been rereading the, uh, I've got it right here, nonlinear, nonlinear pedagogy and skill acquisition book. And that's just really helped because I'm doing kind of all the practice at the same time as I'm diving into the the literature so typically i read in the morning and then i in the afternoon that's when i'm coaching and i immediately can apply these ideas player development wise i'm doing quite a few different things to actually what i was doing last season i'm focusing a lot more on constraining space in a lot of the activities i'm doing and i'm doing way more outnumbered in terms of one against two one offense two defense as opposed to having neutral which would be two against two or even offensive advantage two against one i felt like i did a lot of offensive advantage last year and it was almost too easy in certain elements and it's you know on a low stress practice day we will still do that but i really find like when we're doing the one against twos just with that type of pressure and lack of space it's been really amazing to see just in two weeks since we've really made an emphasis doing it seeing some of the solutions that the players are doing like finishing dribbling because obviously there's no passing option it really kind of constrains them to find solutions um and obviously in our sport that's really important i love that 
I've messed around with some one versus two stuff. Um, one versus two in lacrosse will make people run pretty hard, especially if you put two long poles on them. Yeah. We, we did a fun one the other day. We called it surprise one on two. So the, the, the offense starts with their back to the defense, right? And they just before they cross the half line, but they've got one defender in front of them, but they don't know where the second defender is. It's a surprise. And they're always in a different position. As soon as they turn around, it's live, and they have seven seconds where they're trying to score a basket. But that defender's always coming from a different angle. So naturally, it's repetition, not repetition. The guys, they really enjoyed it. And they started doing some funny things, which were deceptive. Like, I was standing on the side. One time, a guy started speaking to me. He was the second defender, like he was having a conversation. The offense went by, and he didn't know where the defender was, and then he just went. It was really cool to see some of the things they were doing. That's really cool. Well, I mean, when you have three people in a basketball in a hoop, what do you play? You play one-on-one-on-one. -on -one -on -one, you play 21. And it's it's like literally one of the best games for learning how to handle pressure, to split a double, to get a shot off under that kind of pressure. By the way, it's absolutely exhausting. But, um, yeah, I love games. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, what are some other things? What are some other constraints and things you're messing around with? So we are being very um, careful. So I've got a coaching staff myself, five other coaches. We have been very sure to have a shot clock in all our small-sided games. And we call it imaginary wall. So last year, what I did a lot like in the small-sided games was I didn't really constrain the space as well as I could have. So like say I got the guys going in a two-on-two -two or three-on-three, -three, I just let them play in the half court. And I didn't like have a shot clock it, it, and, you know, it was good, but it wasn't as purposeful and representative as it could be, because obviously, you know, when you play five, the five on five version of our sport, you have other defenders and without, if you don't constrain the space, they're going to do some things which aren't going to actually be there as an affordance and actual opportunity for action in the real game. So what we're doing a lot now is being very, making the guys play in smaller spaces. So the coaches will be the wall and their stand in the boundary that the players have to use, right? So then say the objective is a two-on-two -two using a pick, we will be in a wall where they have a small space where they can't venture into different spacings that won't be viable in five-on-five. -five. And it's really good because when we pair that with like a seven-second shot clock, the guys have to be decisive creating an advantage, um, and they can't just, you know, move the ball pass and just run the same, do the same thing as over and over again. They literally have to be aggressive trying to start dominoes and, and create an advantage. So when you pair those together, we, what we do too is we change the space. So the coaches might be moving during the actual activity. Then what we might do is we just add a plus one. We had an extra coach as an extra defender. So sometimes they might take away the pocket pass forcing the offense to reject or maybe we play with a plus one defender and a plus one offense so they can't pocket into the roller but they have to relay pass and pass to that plus one who then passes into the roller so there's lots of different things we're doing kind of adding these plus ones in different spaces so as opposed to like a normal two on two or three on three or even one on one there's a plus one that they could use to pass to and maybe a plus one on defense who's just being a nuisance and moving in different ways. I love that. 
Yeah, I've been messing around with um with that some very similar. It's always it's pretty funny how we end up doing a lot of the same things in our own little uh, ecosystems. We've been using a shot clock in our pickup games for I don't know how long, maybe the last maybe six or eight months. Goalie counts it down. Massive improvement on the games to have a shot clock every time. The space constraint. I agree with you. It, 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 why reward sloppy play in the lacrosse sense where it's harder to throw and catch? Um, the shot clock kind of takes care of that too, though. Um, and um, we we oftentimes constrain the space because in lacrosse, there's righties and lefties. And so we don't really want the lefties to venture to the other side of the field oh. all the time. And so we kind of make them stay on one side, adding the plus ones, uh, two on two plus a feeder is a is a uh a game we play all the time and it, and you call it a relay pass we call it a nation's look the relay pass is where you know if you create an advantage you can throw it to that feeder that can throw it either back to the passer or to the picker depending on whether they switched or stayed exactly it's oh. a, and it's exactly the same in Boston. we call it a boomerang if they if they really if they pass they had nations pass and then they pass back it's like a boomerang and that in Boston was the same as lacrosse. Typically, the defense will relax on that passer because they think the pass is going into that roller. So then what we talk about is that passer is deceptive. They get back out to space. They look like they don't want it. Maybe they do. They put their hands on their knees or they look at a teammate and then they just burst with speed back towards where the ball is, get it back. We call that a boomerang. So it's exactly the same. It is. It's phenomenal. Um, and so... These games are just so powerful and these constraints um, are so cool too. And the space constraint that I've been doing lately that you did at my house is doing three on twos like you did three on twos outside yeah. the three point line. Yeah. A three on two outside the three point line. And I've been doing the same thing with our games. We put, we're playing a three on two outside of a, outside of a, you know, I call it outside the dotted line because in box lacrosse in Canada, they have this dotted line. I don't even know what the dotted line's for. It's an arc. Okay. Basically, if you go inside that arc, anything goes. That's 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 the way I understand the dotted line. Because <laughs> there's no actual two-point shot or anything. But it's like, if you go in there, it's the dirty area. You can pretty much be punched in the face and there will be no call. <laughs> so anything goes inside the dotted line. But but this guy, Darius Kilgore, one of the greatest coaches I've ever known, is box across, uh, legendary coach and player. And he used to do this three-on-two outside the dotted line. So I took it to a, a pickup game or to a free play game, similar to what you've been doing in the backyard. But it's amazing what it does to teach you how to play on the perimeter and how to create spacing on the perimeter and how to like pull somebody down and shift over and create more space on the backside or how to play two-man games and get ghost screens and try to like attack. You can't attack the actual basket, but you can attack space on the perimeter. And it's just, it's perimeter exactly. play. No, it's key. I think people ask me how I teach spacing without doing three on zero, which is very common in basketball. Well, I use that three on two to get my players learning how to play in space and actually how to interact with opponents and their teammates. So, um, and what we typically do is we do it one minute continuous. So, you know, a lot of coaches lose time rotating in small sided games. So the offense stays as offense for a whole minute. So after each shot attempt or each turnover, a new defense comes on and maybe like a new puck or, or but ball is passed in, right, in our sport. So then what it's doing is it's respecting the role of individual constraints because the offense has to adapt to the different types of defenders and maybe they have different sizes, maybe, I don't know, maybe different stick lengths. So it's always different, repetition. Definitely repetition. different energy level. Exactly. 
Um, and then they might the offense might start in a new spacing based on where they were when the previous possession finished. So in one minute, imagine they can get loads of three on two reps and they're learning, you know, how to read the space. And we we just have a general kind of play principle, which is never let one defender guard two. So, you know, when it's not a case of this is, you know, where constraint that approach is different to just a game's approach, because you know, these like you said, these constraints are what lead to all the magic happening. And we just emphasize, you know, don't be in a position where you allow one defender to guard two. And that's when you see all these ghost cuts, spacings, like stretching defenders out. And it's it's really good stuff. Um, just, just on this note, Jamie, one other constraint I did think of just with the previous question, which is a really difficult one, but a really good one for both offense and defense, is when we're playing with our triggers, say it's like a three-on-three, two-on-two, if the defense get to neutral after the second trigger and the offense don't create an advantage on two triggers, it's done. And they stop playing no matter of the shot clock. So, you know, if they, if they don't create an advantage on the first pick, right, maybe they miss an opportunity to pass in or relay pass, nations pass or whatever. They've got one more opportunity to re-trigger and get to another trigger. If they don't create an advantage on that one, the reps done and we just rotate. And that's really been amazing for getting the offense to actually act on the different affordances and opportunities they have to, to create. And for the defense, because, the, you know, they're putting so much effort in to guard two triggers. And if you can guard two triggers well, especially in our sport basketball, most teams are going to be done. They're not going to have any other offense. to, And they just resort to a random one-on-one. Yeah, I love that. It, you know, and I think about this when I think about it with lacrosse, particularly with our like small sided games, a lot of times the triggers aren't open because no one shoots in basketball. You'll shoot, you'll shoot a three. It's kind of like playing it, but it's, but it's kind of like doing, trying to do triggers with little kids that can't really shoot from distance yeah. and there's nowhere to cut yeah. because, because they're all packed in, but they can't really like reach the, the basket. But in, 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 um, in lacrosse, the ability to stretch the defense and shoot, that's one of the reasons why I love the, the, the perimeter game of putting up the, the dotted line is that it makes people look for their shots, which is very obvious in basketball. You go into a pick, you shoot it. And, exactly. and Steph Curry is like, you know, redefining what a, a good shot is. Um, and now people are shooting from all over the place, but in lacrosse and especially in women's lacrosse, nobody shoots. You know, like now at the highest level, they'll shoot, you know, they'll shoot some outside shots on their free position shots from the eight, but it's almost always run it in, run it in and run it in. So what I've kind mm -hmm. of done, and it, it creates over, over in basketball, it'd be over dribbling, over dodging. So I've yeah. kind of created yeah. this arc concept with almost like an exact replica of what a women's lacrosse eight looks like, which is an arc across the top and then diagonal 45 degree lines to the crease. And the reason is, is that I want, I want to, I'm making that area. You can only score in that area on cuts. You can't dodge That's into right. that area. So now That's you can, you can dodge right. on the perimeter. You can dodge on the perimeter and it's, and it's, and it's close enough to shoot, but you can't dodge all the way in. You can't just attack all the way in and what, cause that's a crutch. That's a crutch that a lot of lacrosse players have is they just, they just go to the goal. That's all they do. And in these small-sided games with no equipment, they can take advantage of the fact that no one's really going to 
give the con kind of contact that you'll get in a real game, whether it's men's lacrosse or women's lacrosse, and they kind of get away with just running in full speed against defenders cool. that are kind of not playing, you know, and um, and it creates this off-ball actions. It allows you to sneak into the backside so you can like, you know, you can dunk it from the backside, you know, when you sort of handle it back there. Um, you can dodge, but you can't dodge all the way in. And it's it's really been an amazing um, upgrade for us for ball movement and passing and, and shooting. And that's like in lacrosse. I mean, in basketball, it's obvious. In lacrosse, it is not. And you have to get people what, – what lacrosse players do is they wind up and fake their shot and they, and they, they, they face dodge underneath and they get less angle and shoot it with less angle than the shot they would have had. Now, I know we're – you know, you're a basketball guy, but shooting around your defender – yeah. in lacrosse called a screenshot and it it it's a massively impactful shot that the goalie can't see it people don't want to get hit so they start ducking anyways but but at yeah. the end of the day it's it's a better shot than the lower angle shot so kind yeah. of that, that idea from you and my friend Darius Kilgore um uh, one of the things you were talking about that you've been talking about that you mentioned a couple of times is the word deception and it's a it's a word that you and I talk about a lot you, you mentioned it how deceptive it is um, on your relay pass or what we call nations. Why is that deceptive? Because everybody can see a pick and roll coming. And so if you're going to hang on to the ball and try to feed the pick and roll with a pocket pass or whatever, people are going to be helping. And if you throw it to a third person, the, the, it distracts the defense. They have to go play the ball. And if that player was open, they'll still be open. You also mentioned it like um, with your boomerang cut where you're like kind of put your hands on your knees and pretend like you're not doing anything and you make a cut. Some people might think that, you know, putting your hands on your knees and pretending you're not doing anything is kind of hokey or just kind of like gimmicky. But but mm -hmm. honestly, um, deception, as you stated earlier, it, it creates new affordances. You said this on the phone recently, and exactly. I, I love that. And it's like literally the more I coach, the more I just focus on deception, deception. Please talk more about that on your end, things you're doing and what you're thinking about. So, um deception is key especially in our context like it's very easy for the defense to prepare their coverage in terms of how they want to defend the trigger if you're just walking into that action like let's say you're switching a pick if you're just going to walk into it and just stand there it's going to be very very difficult to create any type of offensive advantage because obviously you know to create that advantage you have to distort the defense so Something we speak about with the guys is getting a triple A rating. Um, and we call I call it the triple A game. So this is another kind of creative small-sided game I, I've come up with. And it's always AAA stands for always arrive alone, right? So basically you get a triple A rating for your team if you run a trigger where you bring your defender at least one meter away from you when the trigger is initiated. So that could be a pick on the ball. It could be a screen off the ball. It could be a dribble handoff, you know, whatever trigger it is we're running. But if you do something when you get to that main trigger where you have that meter of separation, you get a AAA rating. So we do it. You can you can apply this to any small-sided game or scrimmage, whether it's three-on-three -three half court, you know, a full-side game with, with transition. And basically the, the rule is, the first team to win is the team that gets three triple A ratings or hits the points limit of, say, we're going to 15 points. So they have two ways they can win the game. So it's either getting 15 points first or getting three triple A ratings. So, you know, the other team could be on 14 points 
but you get your third triple A, it's done. You win straight away. Um, and, you know, just coming up with ways like that that encourage them to be deceptive. And then we reinforce that. So on video, you know, we show them examples on video on our WhatsApp group where very early on, this is one of the first things I did within our offense, examples of behaviors which were not deceptive, which were predictable. And then I showed them, you know, behaviors where guys did little fakes, changes of speed, triggers before the trigger, all to get open. And they see the difference. Um, and then they start using the language. So you hear them in timeouts and they're like, guys, we need to get a triple A, right? Because it just reinforces that culture. So, and then, you know, we, we reinforce that in things like our vitamins, we call vitamins player development. Um, so in our vitamins work, when maybe they're doing individual shooting, it's just one player and one coach, one on zero shooting. So we don't have a defender, right? Because it's, it's the coach rebounding, but every shot has to be different. And we will say to them, the task is you're going to shoot 10 shots in a row, but you have to do something deceptive before every shot. So they start doing all different movements, different fakes, cutting actions, et cetera, to, to get into their shots. So we kind of reinforce everything we're doing, whether it's player development, team practice, video, you know, we're very consistent with this theme of deception. I love it. I want to get into the, uh, to the concept of um, uh, repetition without repetition and working on your, your vitamin stuff, but I want to stay on this deception topic for a little longer. So first of all, in lacrosse, it's exactly the same. You, you need to create separation if you're the picker from your man in order to, to, to make it uh, a more a better chance to create that advantage. If they're in perfect position, they will switch or stay or, or hedge or uh, communicate just right. Um, I think we probably want a little more than a meter in men's lacrosse. I'd probably like to have two sure. or three meters if I could. But, you know, how do we do this? You, you, you know, actions before actions. So, I mean, uh, like a ram screen, if you if you set a pick, exactly. off, come off a pick. Uh, if you re-pick, so like you fake a pick, slip to the net, come right back, make a, any kind of a backdoor cut will make your guy guard you to the, to the goal. And then you can like get a step coming back on them. It's hard for them to overplay you towards the perimeter. It's not hard, Very hard. hard to cover a hard cut to the basket, but but when you're coming back with speed, they're always a little bit hesitant because they don't want to get backdoored again right to the basket, right? So It's very difficult in our sport, and I think it's the same across, to do two aggressive defensive coverages twice in a row. Yeah. Just because of the, the physics of the angles, like distance, speed, velocity. So what we typically find is if, say, a picker goes and it's an aggressive coverage like a hedge or or something like that, and they don't get the ball if they but they they cut towards the rim and then they come back it's impossible for that defender to hedge it again and be really aggressive you just can't do it and you can't hedge if you're trailing the play yeah you yeah. can't even hedge i mean if, if your defense is going to be like in men's across there's a coverage out there right now where they where they basically drop off the ball and go under the pick in in areas that you couldn't shoot and they have the pickers man step up and hedge and get back while the while oh. the defender goes under. And the reason why it works is because because people can't shoot from the range that they're talking about. So it could be behind the net or it could be farther out in the wings. Um, but you can't run that coverage if you're if you're trailing the play because you can't you won't have the hedge that you need to have. Exactly. Um, so, but there's so much more to deception. I mean, just where just just where you're looking. Just where you're looking, the way you're communicating. 
the idea that deception is nonverbal communication with your opponent or verbal. Hey, Alex, I'm picking for you, I'm picking for you, I'm picking for you, and then you slip the pick, you know, like all of that stuff, that's verbal. You can verbally, you know, fool them, but a lot of it's nonverbal with your posture, with your eyes, with where you're looking, with your hands on your knees. I mean, you know, I watch Steph Curry. If, he, if you watch Steph Curry, you know he's about to get open when he kind of stands there and like doesn't look at anything. And, he, and it's almost like you can you can put yourself in a, a posture. Do you ever see basketball players when they want to get open, they stand so relaxed with their upper body and exactly. they actually like put force into the ground with their feet, but their upper bodies are so relaxed that the defender can't see it happening quickly enough. Do you know what I mean on that? For sure I do. For sure. What, what do you call that? I mean, this is, oh, I don't have a name for it, but. This, it's like I've, the opposite of a jab. It's like, it's like not, you know, it's like. They stand there and they just put force into the ground, but their their body stays so neutral that you can't you you won't react to it because they're not giving anything away with where they're looking or where their posture is. Exactly. Signaling. And I mean, this is the thing though, because it's like you know, it's impossible for these behaviors to emerge if you're not practicing against opponents with good task constraints. You know, I think even if you you know if you're running drills throughout defense, this this these behaviors just won't emerge and i think in the context of the nba players doing it all right they're using drills and practice but they have 82 games a year so naturally right. you know it's just emerging from all those games um then then i think too but i think it goes to show why constraints are important and even even the coach's role because i would view like when i say to the guys find ways to be deceptive i view that as an informational constraint and I'd see a big difference if we just took a normal two on two or three on three. And I've, you know, I'm working with players for the first time. I didn't say anything about being deceptive. I think it would take a long time for them to do, to start doing those things or, or I need to introduce a very specific task constraint like that triple A rating, you know, and that's why I think the coach's role is really important because if you, if you encourage a behavior without being too explicit, you know, I'm not telling them how to be deceptive right? I'm not saying I want you to fake this exact way, do this with your biomechanics. I'm just encouraging them to find different ways on this spectrum to, to do it, right? With the goal of arriving alone. And I think that's where it's a really key part of the constraint that approach being very intentional with how you're using language. Because um, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, what behaviors you're trying to nudge your players towards. How do you try to teach deception? Um, you know, you talk about the AAA rating, but it's it's equally important for the player with the ball to be deceptive. Yes. What are some of the things that you talk about there? Or, I would by say, the way, hey, this is not just with the ball. This is a, if someone's picking off the ball you, too. Yeah. It's off ball too, right? Okay. So let me break it down in two parts. I'll do on the ball first. One-on-ones in very small space where they have to progress and try to get up. So for instance, maybe they start with the ball in the, in the backcourt and they have to advance the, the ball up the length of the, of the court and then make a pass against pressure to another, another opponent, a teammate, but they're being pressured full court the whole time could be a one-on-two. The one-on-two is really good for deception, body fakes, eyes, all of this that really emerges in the one on two. Um, I would say 
on the ball too, like when we're doing our one-on-ones just by ha- like playing in different spacings and also doing it like, say we're doing, we're using a pick. We'd say something like, if you reject the pick, it's worth double. So changing the point system. So, you know, really being very deliberate with what we want to see. And then I think off the ball, um, you, you obviously would do like a one-on-one plus one. The plus one is the passer who starts with the ball. And the offensive player, really simple. They have five seconds where they've got to get open and then play a one-on-one, right? And in a specific space. Then we could do like a one-on-one plus one plus one where there's a screener now trying to get them open. So they can use that screener, but, you know, they might cut back door, they might curl, they might pop. So just activities like that. I mean, we have, I literally have about 30 different things, which I think could be useful to deception. I've just given a few now. Yeah. But, you know, when you use all these activities in different ways, different scenarios, I think you just start to see these behaviors emerging over time. And, and, and the key, it's it's so interesting because when you sort of look at, you think of uh, perception, action, coupling, you're perceiving your surroundings and then you're acting. And you start thinking about a two-man action. And all of a sudden, you know, you have the ball and someone's trying to pick for you. And immediately you, you are trying to figure out the coverage. And then instantaneously, yeah. you have to fuel, you're trying to find where the advantage is going to be based on the coverage, right? Absolutely. And on this point, Jamie, like you've made a great point about that, like the perception action couplings and all of that's key. But that's why, like, say you're playing with a picker, you have to do all this stuff in small-sided games and get loads of reps without repetition in these small-sided games because that's the only way you can be attuned to the capability, not only your action capabilities in terms of what you can do but and how you can use space, but what your teammate can do and what the defense does. Yeah. So that's why, like, for instance, today, I'll give you an example. Our point guard threw a, a lob pass, which went too high. It was unintended. But the picker who was playing, was able, he jumped right above the rim and tipped it in. And the point guard said, I didn't know you could do that. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Then two possessions later, he threw him an alley-oop, which he dunked, right? That only emerged because of the two and two. And also what we do is we call it a conveyor belt. So, you know, in a lot of practices I see of all sports, especially with the, some of the consulting stuff, I see the same players play with and against the same players for extended periods of the practice, right? And they're not adapting because they're just settling for being with that same player every time. Now, of course, if you have a star two star players and you want them to be good in two-man game, of course, give them some time playing with each other because they're going to be in that situation a lot. But what we do in practice is we have players constantly moving to different baskets without us saying, so they literally might just do two reps, three reps, and and they're gone. So what we're doing is we're respecting the role of individual constraints because now, as opposed to playing with our seven-foot big man who dunks everything, maybe you're playing with a six-eight big that we have who's much slower who's not going to have those same capabilities so you have to adapt and you know use different solutions so that's a key thing we're doing in all practices and all small-sided games instead of keeping them at both ends or keeping them in the same people they have the green light to move and if they don't do it a coach will very quickly say after like 40 seconds start moving move around love it so back to what i was what i was talking about was something i texted you the uh, a couple weeks ago 
which is that in two-man game, you need to you first need to be figure out how the defense is playing so that you can find what the what the advantage is going to be. So if there's a, a switch, you try to engage two and slip. If they're going to fight over the pick, you bring them over the pick with you. And either you're going to the net or you draw two because they're with you. If they go under, you shoot. And, 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 and almost simultaneously, you have to fuel that advantage with deception. And that's how you start to figure out what you were talking about a minute ago of what the capabilities and what the defense will do. So you could you could bait them to come out to you with a fake shot or a fake pass. Or faking receiving. You froze. Oh, yeah. You froze for a second. Uh, I'm back. Sorry, it was five seconds. It went. Yeah, no problem. Italian Wi-Fi. You can, you can, you can learn to bait them out to you by faking a pass or faking a shot and, and engaging them with that. Or, or you can fake receiving the ball. Faking, putting your hands up in basketball and faking receiving is going to bring somebody to you, and then you can make a cut or you can backdoor them. Faking receiving, faking shooting, faking jabbing, all of these things, and then, and then you you simultaneously have to communicate with your teammates and the communication is like the gel that makes it work. And then finally the ball movement oftentimes allows you to capitalize on the advantages. So anyways, deception is just so massive. And I just, the more I coach, the more I think that that is like the main thing you have to do is oh, be deceptive. It's, it's, key. it's key, Jamie, like, especially these teams that, you know, the teams that aren't running principles based offense, I call it conceptual offense in basketball. It's exactly the same as your principles-based offense in the cross. But the teams that aren't doing that and say they're still running patterns and motion offenses with the same things repeated over or set very specific set plays, if you're not deceptive in that, you basically have no chance of creating an advantage. Right. It's it's you basically the defense would have to be absolutely awful. Um and have severe problems for you to create anything out of that. And and often when with the teams that run these very, you know, antiquated motion offenses, the advantage and the goals are created when players break the script and go off from that action anyway and do something because yeah. they, right. they're acting on affordance. So this is the whole thing of basketball. I'm trying to get coaches to move away from these motion offenses. But the thing is, you know, they've been done in basketball for 50 years. To me, it makes no sense to play that way. But unfortunately, it's just it's the way it is. But, you know, it's so interesting that you say this because the bottom line is, is that, yeah, in those continuity offenses and, 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 and predictable sets, patterns that can work, they will never work without deception. But the fact is, is that the conceptual offense and the principles based offense doesn't work as nearly as well without deception either. So if you're predictable in what you're doing in any offense, it's not going to work. Now, the one difference is, is that in the conceptual offense or a principle based offense, there's so much stuff that happens off script that you're bound to actually just get lucky <laughs> more, yeah. more so than when you're running the same pattern over and over and the defense knows exactly what's going to happen. And so that's probably. Oh, absolutely. And, and I've got another example, Jamie, like we haven't, and it's my fault, not my player's fault, but we haven't done a good job being adaptive within our baseline and sideline out of bounds place. Right. So I don't know if this is as, big in lacrosse but when the ball goes out of bounds it's a really good opportunity to get a, a score right because it's the ball is in a good good position so um i've actually given the boys more scripted sequences because 
I felt like we've got probably seven NCA future players on our on our team. And obviously, if they go to the NCA, they're all going to have, you know, very scripted set-based offense. So I wanted them to at least understand how to run set plays and all this. But the problem was, again, the reason why we, we analytically, our conversion from Bobs and Sobs, I've re- I reviewed our first five games, and the conversion was very low, far lower than our half-court offense, and it shouldn't be like that. And it was because we were running the patterns to the end. And I obviously hadn't done a good job preparing players. And, and I, we practiced it today. We spent 20 minutes, five on five, Bobs and Sobs, obviously not doing it five on zero. as to whether you froze again. go off you froze again i'm right so sorry said, jamie it's okay right There's when you said game. five on zero five on zero okay um so we didn't do it five on zero like that like with the common method in the Barcelona world we did it five on five and i said to the players you have to make the decision as to whether you're going to go off script to create an advantage and the set's done or you don't feel like you can have an advantage of one trigger and we go to the next part of the set because, you know, in each set, maybe there are like four or five different triggers or parts involved. And I said, you know, if we can get something off the first part of the set, great. We don't need to keep running it. We'll take that. And that's where it's on you to know if you can act on that affordance or not. And then we go to the next part and we just practiced it five and five. And we saw a huge difference with guys being creative and deceptive. Again, there's that deceptive word because they're doing different things off it. And it just, the task constraints forced them to be smarter and not just run these set plays as like mental models and patterns through to the end. I love it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, repetition without repetition. You know, when you were, you made a comment earlier, like you're not going to learn deception unless you're playing with, with teammates and, and opponents and therefore you, you just can't do it without without that and, and ideally with some good constraints and tasks it'll it'll even augment the, the opportunities to learn these things but you know there's a lot of so so therefore if, if you're a coach and you're coaching small group and you've got stuff you've got kids there you should you should really put the majority of your time into scenarios where they're going to be able to read a defense read a coverage sure. create affordances through deception and, and the like but there's so many kids that want to practice by themselves or like you said you know there's there's something to being a great shooter and just and being able to be a great shooter in basketball and it's the same in lacrosse there's an element of accuracy there's an element of range there's an element of of you know practicing on your own or just practicing the skill itself and so i wanted to i i want to try to get some thoughts from you on how you do that and how you view that. And I want to try to translate that to lacrosse too. Absolutely. So I think, um, let, let me think about how to phrase this. I think with isolated practice, where it's just a player and a goal, a net, a ball, whatever, that's enormously valuable, right? Um, and I think what we would typically see, say there's a, a kid, you know, who's, just practicing on a shooting on a lacrosse net in the garden, right? That's incredibly valuable. But what you're typically going to see is they're probably going to be practicing shooting in different ways because they're going to shoot. Maybe they run to the net, pick the pick the like pick the ball up again, run to a different spot, shoot again, right? 
it's obviously exactly the same advice I know when I was growing up, when I was practicing in the garden, I always did different shots just because, you know, I'm not going to be doing a hundred feet throws in a row because it's not fun. Right. I'd be imagining that I was shooting over a defender or trying to re recreate a shot I'd seen on the NBA highlights the night before. Right. And I'd be visualizing that. So I think isolated practice is key. And in our vitamin sessions, we do uh, one on zero uh, shooting as part of it. Um, so it's a combination of very specific, because in vitamins, it's a max of four players we have in a group, or it could be one player. So we might do a mixture of some small-sided games with the one-on-zero. And the one-on-zero we do is differential learning. So it's not it's not the same as, as kind of nonlinear pedagogy, because approach. It's a different approach, but it's basically about it's the scientific word is infusing movement perturbations on the performer. So what that means about infusing different perturbations on the performer. So basically that's just getting them moving as many different ways as possible. So these, basically these movements will cause the body to adapt because they have to shoot in different ways. Right. So I'll give you some examples. We'll be shooting on different surfaces so as opposed to just being on the floor, on the hardwood, we might put a really heavy crash mat down, you know, a thick crash mat. And they, it, what does it do to the body? Well, it's really going to create, they're going to have to create a lot of force generation, hip thrust to get that shot off. Then we might do a very small mat and then the wood floor, right? So different surfaces. We might change the lighting in the gym. So we turn the lights off. Right. Obviously in lacrosse, I think that's way more important than basketball because you've got things like wind. I don't know how much of an impact that would have, but it's an environmental condition. You've got the floor type, maybe it's wet, maybe it's dry, you know, all of this stuff. Maybe it's raining and you gotta practice you practice in the rain, right? And I think this is a big one for coaches outside, not just trying to practice if you're on NCA program, not just practice the same time in the same conditions. Can you do one? at night under the floodlights in the, in the morning, you know, different, different weather conditions like you'll see in the game. Uh, so that's environmental, but then it's, it's like going back to differential learning would be, would be like, okay, so shoot with a different movement before the shot every time. So maybe you might move backwards. You might move sideways. You might come in front. We might do use different balls, Jamie. So we use a size five basketball, which is used in Europe for, 14 and under I don't, it's not a thing in the u.s that's why europeans shoot well it's not because we teach shooting well um so we have a size because five have, ball it's because you guys have a smaller ball for smaller kids exactly so it's scaled to the physical properties of each player right uh, and smaller hoops too it's eight foot hoops so right so then we might alternate between shooting with a size five and a size seven or a heavier ball and a lighter ball different stances so we might shoot like jumping in the air as high as you can and then staying rooted maybe we might shoot off a lunge um we might have different um release speeds shoot as quickly as you can or maybe shoot as powerfully as you can with as much backswing as possible now shoot without backswing um so the idea is they're not gonna it's we're not doing this because they're gonna do these movements in a game right a lot of these are irrelevant we're doing it because it's linked to Nikolai Bernstein's work with degrees of freedom. And that's, you know, how that's basically looking at when the human body has so many different ways to move. It's like, how do, how can we put those movements in a controlled state, which is stable for, for sport lacrosse in this case. So the idea with this differential learning is 
by getting a lacrosse player to shoot as many different ways as possible, it's widening the different uh, movements that they can use. And what it might do is it might nudge them towards finding a more efficient solution that's more stable and more, maybe it's more powerful, maybe it's more accurate, maybe, you know, so it's, you're kind of like, it's a little bit like scrambling around in the dark because you don't know as the coach, you know, you might hit the sweet spot and it might really help that player. I think all the DL will, will help, but you might find one that's way more effective over time in kind of destabilizing their coordination pattern and getting them maybe shooting very slightly differently, but in a way that might lead to huge results. I didn't want to get too sciencey, but it's quite a sciencey topic with how I use differential learning. The, Love that it. makes yeah, sense. so cool. Yeah. And, and in lacrosse, you know what, what people do that I feel like I feel bad because there's a lot of kids that are working their butts off, but they're just hammering out a hundred of the same shots. That's what like, I mean. That's what you want to avoid at all costs. And they're, and they're on the wall and they're doing 25 left and 25, right. And 25 of these and 25 of those and 25 of these and 25 of those. And, and, and basically it's just, it's putting you into habits that may not be good habits and they're definitely not differential learning. You know, exactly. really interesting thing in lacrosse Combination. is, is yeah. using different, you know, the stick itself is a constraint. So your pocket size is a constraint. So a, a women's stick has very little pocket, much harder to catch with, much quicker release, generally more accurate. Um, you could get a lot of mileage out of that stick if you're a, a men's player and you use that stick, it, it, it gives you an appreciation for quick release and accuracy. Um, one time passing, you know, you're going to be much more likely to just like quickly release a pass and one time a pass kind of like the Larry Bird touch passes uh, with, with a women's exactly. stick and you will with a stick with a huge whip. Likewise, girls are so limited because their sticks that they grow up with these girls sticks are generally like such tennis rackets. Just imagine trying to play lacrosse with a tennis ball on a tennis racket and 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 how difficult it would be to catch, how difficult it would be to fake. There's, yeah. there's almost no opportunity for centrifugal force of keeping the ball in. And so for girls to use boy sticks is massively impactful or long poles. Yeah, you use a long pole, it makes you play completely differently. Um, and, and the and, poor long poles get stuck with a long pole for their whole lives. And so they don't learn how to do all these things that they could learn how to do with shorter sticks. That's it, Joe. And it's, I get exactly the same in basketball. Why are you shooting with a size five basketball when you don't use that in a game? And some coaches are like, oh, it's going to make their shooting worse. It's not because it's making them more adaptable. So even though they won't use that size stick in a game, they're going to become more skillful using different sticks and even different balls, maybe mix like a light tennis ball or something with a lacrosse ball totally. because they're having to attune to something different every rep. So maybe a coach might be standing there with a few sticks and different balls yeah. and the players just shooting on the net, ideally with a goalie, but if you don't have a goalie, fine. And they're just going to say, all right, shoot a different shot every time. And sometimes I'm going to give you a different stick and a different ball. And that's going to be amazing because the adaptability just from that is incredible. The repetition out repetition is awesome. And then, you know, maybe you have a passer. So it's not just coming in like dodging and shooting. So the coach will give the ball in a different way every time from a different angle. So they might throw it high in the air, on the floor, from behind, from in front, from the side at speed, slowly. So now, you know, you're having to receive, shoot, 
different every time. Um, so that's the key thing. When we do one on zero, it's always differential. It's not one on zero blocked, constant practice, shoot a hundred in a row. And it's the same in lacrosse, Jamie. I, I've been in about eight different NBA practice gyms. Most, of, especially about five years ago, most of these practice gyms had a chart of the free throw shooters, right? Of, of their team. And they always shot in the NBA, a hundred free throws. Most teams did this players shoot like a hundred in a row. It's done all the time, even now in NCAA and the players would get scores like 95 out of a hundred. 95%. And the, they would actually write down the scores if it was a meaningful result. Sure enough, the, mo the most notable one that stands out in my mind when I was in the Lakers gym when Dwight Howard was there, his score was 96% shooting three throws blocked 100 in a row. His three throw that percentage that year was 44.5%. Wow. And I think that's just a great example of why Coaches in all levels need to question things. I don't know why anyone on a staff at that level would not say, hang on, are we doing something wrong here? And this is where it all comes back to representative learning design and ecological dynamics, because, you know, it's, you're going to become a much better Trito shooter, Dwight Howard in this example, doing the tasks we just described versus shooting a hundred Tritos in a row. For sure. Now lacrosse is, lacrosse is a little different than basketball because the coordination and skill that it takes to be able to catch and throw uh, with a, a stick in a ball is different than a bigger ball with just your hands. Yeah. So we talked about this in our pre-conversation, Brian McCormick, really a great basketball coach on Twitter. And he, he's got awesome content with his fake fundamentals. And he talks about the biggest waste of time ever is three man weave in basketball. Um, and it's because everybody kind of knows how to throw and catch. And so why would you be, why would you be practicing that? And you could say, well, maybe we're just doing it to warm up. And it's like, okay. But in lacrosse, you know, for intermediate and um, beginner players, the ability to throw and catch on the run at different distances with differential, you know, it, it's important then to kind of get them to be able to run around and throw and catch at different angles and different distances harder and softer, obviously using different sticks and different, different implements would be huge. And it's, and it's really important for the advanced player. There's a little bit of a, a stick, the stick. Just imagine if your hands were a little different, you know, from one month to the next, that, that, that's yeah. kind of what, that's kind of what a stick is like uh, a year's pocket is a little different and you got to dial it in and make sure it's right. So doing some kind of non, um, non-contextual, yeah, exercises in practice uh, can be warranted. Um, but I just wanted to sort of put that out there for the lacrosse coaches that, you know, basically I don't do much of it for an advanced team. I might do five or 10 minutes of warming up so got, people can get their sticks going and throwing the ball hard for intermediate and uh, beginner players. I would probably do more of it. However, I would definitely turn all of that stuff into keep away Yes. Uh, because yes. now you are doing the passing and catching, but you've got the context that I would say maybe the difference is you can kind of work on your transitional handling of the ball, running up the field at distances. And then when you get into more the half field, half court concepts, you're going to work on your on your passing and catching with the keep away model because it creates a more. Uh, contextual model of realistic pressure. Exactly. 
Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about your the triggers that you use um, just to make sure you define them. So first of all, define triggers. What are triggers and how do you define sure. them? So a trigger would be a quick action to try and create an advantage. And it could be anywhere from a two person action to a four person action. Um, so we we actually color code our offense, Jamie. So we call it green, yellow, red. So green is transition, right? So we don't need a trigger because we're playing fast, trying to get a high-value shot um, before a defense is set. Yellow is basically as soon as we can't be in green. So as soon as the ball is stopped and we're stopped, as opposed to stopping the motion and calling a play, wasting time and allowing the defense to get more set, we just flow immediately into a trigger. And the idea is because there are always different spacings, different triggers, it's harder to guard because the defense don't know what's coming. And then we have red. Red is when we're really, it's a traffic light, right? This is, you know, I got it from Will Weaver, who I work with at Paris. And and red is uh, completely neutral, no advantage, really slow down. And that is when we run a set play. But our set plays are not set plays like other basketball coaches do them because it's basically triggers put together. So I'll give you an example. A trigger for us could be rub and the signal we don't even use the signal because we just say it or we just do it without needing to call it so rub is a pick and roll in the middle of the floor side is a pick and roll on the side wide is a screen off the ball and then we have stack which is basically a back screen for the picker we've got way more but and then pistol you know these are different triggers but then what we do with our sets is we just put the triggers together so it could be we just yell out stack wide. And typically this is on a dead ball when the ball has gone out of bounds. So we yell stack wide. Everyone echoes the call. So we all repeat it. We don't care if the other team knows what we're doing. Most of the time they have no idea. So stack wide. And then we run stack into a wide. But again, if there's an advantage in the first part of the stack, it's done. We don't need the wide. So all our triggers are meshed. So it means we could, it's a clever system because it means we could literally have 40 different combinations of what we use in a set. And obviously each game we'd only need like eight. So it's it's taken a big jump up this year, our sophistication with our offense. But I mean, we had amazing results. Like obviously I'm not coaching to win. Like it's nice because we're beating really good teams, but the players, like when they go to the next level, that's NCAA or pro, they will understand because they know triggers, they'll know any set play. Because all these set plays that these coaches have, it's comprised of triggers. Right. And the problem is right now in the NCA, players don't know how to play on offense because they don't understand the affordances within the trigger. They're just running sets like robots. Whereas hopefully, well, not hopefully, my players will be able to go and if they're allowed to, fingers crossed, touch wood with their coaches, the first part of a set, they're creating an advantage, set's done. We got a basket. I can't stress enough um, how exciting it is because I've done this too, to watch players really learn how to run triggers on their own, how to communicate them, how to read the coverages, see the affordances, how some players see it better than others. Oh, for sure they do. And that's it, just those individual constraints, like perceptual ability, like, you know, every player, like I've got an example, like, especially multi-sport, like one kid came, started basketball late and just played basketball. And it's such a noticeable difference just in terms of 
what he perceives compared to like players I've had who have been with me a while and done other sports growing up. And it's also really interesting to watch how, how like if you have one player in an action or a trigger who can communicate it and see it and read it, the, the player they're playing with who might not be able to be as good at recognizing affordances, you can create the advantage even when one player doesn't really see it because the other one can communicate to them what, what needs to happen. Have you seen have you noticed that? And what we do is we take advantage when we play other teams, we exploit players when we see they can't act on simple affordances. So if we, if we see that they really can't do something, then we will exploit that ruthlessly and maybe be, do some type of defensive scheme, which is really exploiting that player. And, and I think that's, you know, you, those, those players become very obvious weak links very quickly on if, if you're watching that stuff as a coach. Yeah. But the nice thing is, is if you can get, if you, if you keep doing this, you're, you'll, you'll develop more players that can oh, recognize the affordances, exactly. more players Absolutely. that communicate it. And then they can bring the other players along a little bit. Um, and it's oh. massively impactful. I mean, if you're just like, you One know, season. That's yeah. all you need, Jamie. Yeah, like, it is. Because I, I started this, you know, this I started this prep academy here last season. And that was my first intake of working with the players. And by the end of the season, it was amazing. Now we're in our second year. Some of the players who have returned, we had six players return. You know, they're at a, an amazing level. They help everyone else. And now you have a program. And I think, especially for NCA coaches, that can be such a huge competitive advantage. Huge. In lacrosse, I think so many people um, want to run two-man actions, but but they are relying, it, uh, on whether it be an up pick or a down pick or whatever, the different kind of triggers you can create there. But but they're relying too much on trying to um, score off the pick and roll itself rather yeah. than use the relay, rather exactly. than use – rather than throwing it to somebody else. And I, and I, I just can't stress this enough to lacrosse coaches. Discourage your players from looking for their pick and roll when it's there, they'll make the play. Trust me. And it will be there sometimes, no question about it, but, but encourage them rather to find the outlet to throw it to in the middle of that two man game. That will allow for you to take advantage to capitalize on the advantage through distracting the, the whole defense is watching your pick and roll. They're going to have somebody rotating to it. And meanwhile, by hanging on to the ball, looking, 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 you've lost the advantage of swinging it to somebody else who's in the middle of their own two man action. Exactly. Obviously in lacrosse in men's lacrosse are six on six and in women's it's seven on seven. So we can get more actions occurring at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you, you call your two man actions duets and your three man actions trios and your four man actions quartets. And I, I believe, you know, when, when things get red, you're more likely to run a three man or four man action because right. that is exactly well, they're harder to exactly. contain exactly. and they're a little harder exactly. to run too, but tell, talk a little bit more about that. Okay. So in yellow, we can run a two man game because the defense is, is not completely set right and it's 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 quick to get into we don't want lag on red because the game's already slowed the philosophy is by running more like quartets and stuff it's involving more players in the action so there's more likely going to be a defensive breakdown right but i don't necessarily want those quartets 
um, on those four person actions when we can be in yellow and just run a really quick pick and roll slip, get a basket straight away. Because because what I find is coaches trying to go, coaches basically miss green and yellow and go straight to red. Yeah, and then like, you're just missing out on loads of easy affordances to score. And what I find is with the quartets, players if they're not if you're not very deliberate, they kind of just default to running that. So I actually put those in last. So I start with all two man game and three man game, and then they just have that on red. So we actually only added red two weeks ago. So we started the first two months of the season just with two and three person actions primarily. We'd have like quick pick and roll gets on on yellow, and then when it was really slow, the guys just ran stack, which is basically a three person trigger back screen where you back screen the picker. So we call it screen the screener in basketball. And then you know now we might run stack wide, which is a four person action because you have three in the stack, and then the wide involves the fourth player. So I think it's we're just very deliberate to, you know, primarily use those on the slow balls because we want to play fast and everything we do, we want to be quick. Right. So never want to avoid a situation where we're having to get the ball to a particular spot to run offense, right? We want to run offense from however we arrive. I call it natural organic arrival, right? It's just organic. However we arrive after transition, we're initiating offense. Um, so that's basically what we're, what we're doing and then i think naturally you know you might start a duet and you you know naturally it might just involve another player maybe you run you try and run a get which is a handoff and then instead of getting the ball back the you know you go screen for another player and they come into the action so it's very the idea is that your team can flow in between all these things without even knowing it like honestly jamie i haven't even spoken now about duets trios quartets because i haven't needed to right it's they'll just eventually just happen which has been great but i use it with the coaches because it's that's how you understand it and actually you know you don't know what you don't know right so now when i use that terminology it just helps coaches understand what a trigger is and the different possibilities you have do you consider a relay a three-man action exactly so this is a this is a really interesting one because there could be a pass on a pick and roll which involves a third player, but they're not, it's not like that third player is setting a screen or a pick. So for me, I would only class it as a trio, Jamie, if that third player sets a screen or a pick. Got it. Right. Yeah. But that relay pass is good because it's just being deceptive and taking what affordance, like an possible affordance that exists in that moment. So you, you, you specify it by pick actions. Exactly. Uh, by a pick or a screen. And, and I feel like in lacrosse, I mean, the bottom line is, is, is that you're going to get so many actions going on. You're not going to just, you're not even going to be calling out uh, necessarily every single time because it's just going to happen. If you're doing this right, you're going to be setting a lot of picks. However, exactly. you want to get some communication where you might get, somebody might say, I'm going to up pick for you versus, or, Hey, Alex seal for me, or, yeah. um, you know, what, whatever there's, you know, Let's run a quick flare. Let's get a flare. And you might say that in between plays and you might do it, you know, in, in, in lacrosse, you got lefty side and righty side. So the lefties might have their own communication going on on one side and the righties might have their own communication going on the other side. Oh, absolutely. The pick the picker thing um, in, in people call that Spain. It's from basketball. Yeah. I used to call it Spain pick and roll. And then I just called it stack because I prefer the name. 
And yep. Spain, the, the coach of Spain claimed to have invented it, but he didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> well, in lacrosse, they call it Spain. And, um, it, and it's, I look at Spain too, is like when, you know, if, if you're getting, if you're creating advantages off of your, uh, pick and roll or your, uh, relay, which is nations, then, then don't bother bringing another person into that action because you're going to oh, just yeah. fog it up. But exactly. if, you, if they're guarding your actions really well, that's when you can all of a sudden that's pick it, a picker and yeah. create a much harder uh, situation for the defense to communicate. I mean, I want you to imagine, people that are listening, I want you to imagine you're on defense and you're talking to your teammate and you're like, hey, pick coming right. And then someone comes behind you and says, pick left. What are you going to do? Right. That's that, that, yeah. that it's a total mind bender when you try to think about what you're going to exactly. do. If you're trying to play a defensive coverage on an on ball pick and roll, and then somebody picks you off ball at the same time and they're telling you that, are you yeah. going to switch or stay? Uh, you can't really process that on two that's, different people. That's exactly it. And, and that's where it becomes more tactical as the coach. Like, you know, for us, and that's where it comes to tactics. If we have our best player, is our point guard and he's just creating dominoes, creating an advantage every time off a simple pick, then we don't need anything else. We might just run that. Whereas the base team where it's a better defense and they can take that away, we just find like typically the average is we can easy, more easily create an advantage and start dominoes when we're running these more elaborate things. But then, you know, it's, it's that's the kind of spectrum which is coaching and knowing like who you're against this time and score who the opponent is what's happened in the game you know and that's when it becomes more tactical yeah it's really really cool stuff um so alex i think um we're gonna have to do this again um and just continue to talk about drills and constraints and triggers um before we go how do people how do you practice getting your team to go through the checklist of of triggers so that they're okay. really good yeah. because the communication of yeah. the ability to do these different things it can be developed um but if but like you said they won't just necessarily do these things naturally uh from no, scratch no, at no, all and they won't even do them naturally even when they know them unless you no. can figure out a way to get them no, to do no. for sure so um I would show the triggers because they wouldn't even know what a get is. Right? A get is when you pass. It's a pick and roll without through a pass. So you pass to the picker and you go and get it back as opposed to dribbling to the picker. That's a get. Yeah. Right. They would have most players would have no idea what that is because it's quite an uncommon action. It's not as common as like a dribble handoff in basketball. I would show them, but what I'd say is there are loads of different things you can do with this, I, aka affordances. I don't use that word for players because they have no idea what it is. But I'll be like, there are loads of different things you can do as this happens. So I don't want you to just pass and go get it back and try and drive every time because you're going to find there are loads of different things you could do here. You might be able to cut. You might be able to reject. You might be able to keep it and not give the ball back and run the pick. So I'm very intentional in my language. And then what we do is just create the task constraints with like a lot of, we have, it's too probably complex to get into. We have like probably 80 different types of two-on-one for the offense with different constraints leading to 
things happening within pick and roll and gets, this is like my whole book that I'm working on. Yeah. So this would be the, the scenario, but we would start Jamie actually doing it three on three because lots of touches. And I'd say you have to score trying to run a get or a pick and roll or a screen away or a pistol, whatever the trigger is or a stack, AKA spade, I'd show them. Right. And then they start adapting and doing different things. And I really encourage as this happens, I'm really encouraging and clapping when they do something deceptive or something different, right? If they do the same thing every time, I'll run an intervention. I'll get them over and I'll be like, all right, guys, what's happened last two possessions? What have you done? Oh, on the stack, we've always set the back screen, held it, popped, roll and went. We didn't create advantage. What else could you do? Find some different things you could do. And then maybe the next one, instead of holding the back screen, they immediately sprint out to space. Or maybe the picker flips the angle of the pick. So it's very intentional how we build these triggers up. Um, and then it's complemented. It's obviously through three on three and then lots of two on one, two on two, two on two plus one, three on two plus one, three on three, four on three. So it's kind of a whole library of different task constraints we'd have, which complement the learning. The most important trigger, Jamie, is to say that if they don't get to a trigger within three seconds, it's a turnover. And that's the way to introduce conceptual offense. What you'll see in basketball is teams come down over dribble, try and run a one-on-one. In lacrosse, probably just dodging, dodging, you know, not doing anything decisive, not good spacing. So with us, if you don't get to a trigger within three seconds, it's a turnover. And we played with that rule for the first week. And then sure enough, guys are forced. They call the triggers, not me. They're coming down. They see it's yellow. Boom. We're into it. We're playing. And if, if they don't, then it's a turnover and they quickly learn. What about the, the battleship game? So battleship is a great way to introduce it. Um, honestly, I haven't done it this year. And the only reason why is because I didn't need to. I, was, I wasn't expecting it, James. My guys were so good running these triggers in different locations. I didn't need to do it. For coaches who don't know what Battleship is, it's one of my things in the BDT offense. It's, it's, it's a game I came up with when I was coaching in Belgium. It was actually with an under-16 youth team, and they couldn't get the idea. So the idea is, say you take one trigger like a pick, the, the, how you win Battleship is scoring by creating an advantage in like four or five different locations using that pick. So instead of always running your trigger in the same location, like I see what some teams doing, it forces the players to learn, okay, maybe we're going to set this on the side, maybe low, maybe high, maybe in the middle. So, And then they have to communicate because if they know they've already scored from one spot, then they've got to figure it out and be like, no, we need to score. We need to get, get an offense from here. And then what does the defense do? They start disrupting it more. So maybe they try and overplay to stop that happening. And then you cut back door. So it's a really clever game. Yeah. Basically, it's the sport version of the Battleship board game with some slight different task constraints. Right. Um, and, you know, I've got a bunch of different games like that, and I try and link them to fun things which make more sense of it and all that. Yeah, so in lacrosse, it, it you know, what I what I do when I run Battleship, I'll, I'll do it in keep away. Okay. I'll, I'll do it in, in all even. I, I might say, you know, in a keep away game – you know, you have to get a nation's look or a give and go or a Spain or uh, uh, and right. then, and then, which is phenomenal because now you're just working on actions and you're not even trying to score. You're just trying to get open. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. But, but also um, 
in, in regular set offense, I might say, you know, we, we need to score goals off of a, a Ram, uh, a down pick throwback nations, a swing nations, an up pick nations. Uh, oh, we constrain triggers all the span. time, Jamie. What's that? All the time. We constrain triggers all the time. And also like how we do it is if, if we know there's one team we're playing on Sunday who would really struggle with one type of trigger, we run that more in practice that week. So the analogy is it's like a pie chart. Your offense is like a pie chart and it's going to change, right? Like what are the ways you can create advantages? And, you know, it's the, and, and the proportion of triggers will change. You know, it's going to be pretty stable. You're not going to change your whole offense every week, but you might run 50% of stack and then you might run at 20% one with, because you know, this is where scouting comes in. So as opposed to, you know, the traditional approach where you try and memorize the set plays and all this rubbish, we would just be like, all right, what are the tendencies? What, what can we exploit? All right, they can't guard stack well. We got the person and we can punish them. We've ramped this up. And this week we run more X, Y, and Z triggers. And then next week might, might be different. So, and this is the whole thing. When you have this, you're versatile and no team can really stop you. And then if it's not working in the game and we're not creating an advantage, guess what? We got eight other triggers. We'll go to those. Great. So good. All right, Alex, we're going to have to, um, we're going to have to say goodbye because we've been on for a while, but we got to do this again. Um, and um, for all the listeners out there, um, Alex and I are doing some cool stuff. I, I, I work with a lot of coaches um, across the country and men's and women's lacrosse. And um, I'm going to end up bringing Alex on board to work with some of our JM3 coach uh, consultations so that he can bring a completely different eye and a fresh approach to your player development. Um, and I'm really excited about this. Um, we're going to do more content so you can kind of understand where he's coming from. He'll be learning lacrosse as he goes. Um, but this stuff is so applicable. And I think, um, I think, you know, for me, getting new ideas is so huge. And I'm sure it's for you too. Oh, absolutely. Just like, it's very stimulating conversation. And I think a lot of similarities, but then I think, you know, I get excited thinking about how you can apply this stuff in another sport. And I think that could be really exciting to see like how some of these things we've discussed can be applied. Good stuff. Alex, good luck. Great talking to you. We'll be in touch. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jamie.